Heavenly Father, I would pray that thy spirit might be with me right now as I share the scripture from the Book of Mormon and sing this beautiful song about love from the music man. So much of my work is dedicated to love, and I know that it is thy work to teach us how to love each other better and in more tender ways. I would pray that the spirit of this song and the scripture might set the tone for the room as we discuss childbirth and the impact that it has on family life and the hope of parents being empowered in every possible way to comfortably get married, settle down, welcome their children one by one, and just live out their days happy and free and with great love. That is my prayer on this beautiful Monday morning. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The scripture today is from the Book of Mormon, and it's from the first book of Nephi, chapter 3, verse 7. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, said unto my father, I will go. Enjoy. There were bells on the hill, but I never No, I never heard them at all Till there was you There were birds in the sky But I never I never 
there was you. Welcome to the Jenny Hatch Show. I am your host, and it is a beautiful September morning. I am so happy to be here today talking about my favorite subject, which is, in fact, childbirth. And I have proved a disruptor to the agendas of the elites. The, they like to call themselves the elites in our world. The number one thing that they have wanted for the families of the earth is that they be broken and dysfunctional because there is so much possibility in that brokenness for them to control everybody. And if they can get a husband and a wife warring with each other, then 90% of their work is done. They just need to sit back and capture all of the economic melee that falls when those two people start warring with each other and fighting over everything, fighting over the kids, fighting over custody of the kids, fighting over uh, how we're going to raise the kids, how we're going to educate And in these wars, the elites have made lots and lots of money. So my message to start today's show is that the most revolutionary thing you can do as an individual to push back on all that is evil in our world is to fall in love, get married, stay true to your marital vows, Don't cheat on your spouse. And then gently and with much knowledge and uh, awareness, give birth to your children at home and limit their exposure to doctors, drugs, pharmaceuticals, and the infrastructures that are in place in our society to push those pharmaceuticals on your kids and raise them as holistically as you can possibly manage in this day 
and age. That is how to be a revolutionary in 21st century America and at the world at large. This is how you push back. There are many people agitating for change, agitating for revolution. We want to take down these systems that are oppressing. Yes, we do. We honestly do. But the best way for you as an individual to take down those systems is to not uh, allow yourself to be manipulated by them and to just walk away. We all stand up and walk away from the infrastructures they have set up, especially for birth, which is where, frankly, the whole party for them begins. You walk away from that uh, and encourage all of the people in your sphere to walk away from that. That is where we will find our autonomy, our economic solvency, and our freedom. This has been my message for over 30 years to anybody who will listen to me. And if you look at the links in the show, I have put a link to my book, A Mother's Journey, which tells the story of how we as a family weaned from those infrastructures. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit of that story if you haven't heard my words yet or my story, because I think it's a story that many people are um, experiencing right now for the first time. And I just want you to know that somebody has lived through these traumas and experiences, and I've come out on the other side with a mostly intact family, five healthy children. Now I have two healthy grandchildren. Um, my husband and I are still married. We still love each other, cherish each other, and we have survived the many um, potholes waiting to engulf us, whether it be interfacing with psychiatry or the birth machine, the childbirth machine, the one in America is the most noxious and dangerous for females that's out there right now. It is the most uh, deadly for moms and babies. It has one of the highest infant mortality rates, higher than some third world countries that's often not talked about. And the morbidity rate, and morbidity is different than mortality. Mortality is mom, baby, dead. Uh, and they only include the moms who die for just a couple days after the birth. They don't include the moms or babies who die a week or two or a month later because of birth complications. They don't include those people in their statistics. So even there, the statistics are skewed. Morbidity is something that happens to the mom that would not normally happen during just a regular vaginal birth. Something disabling happened to her. So the morbidity rate, these surgical interventions, drug side effects, uh, these are also at astounding numbers for the American mom. And childbirth in America, since it moved to the hospital, has, I believe, this is my personal opinion, been the source of more divorces and disruptions in family life than perhaps any other thing. That there's a notion that, you know, if there's a troubled marriage, the, the seeds of that are sown in the bedroom. You know, there's problems with sex. And I can see there are issues there. There's lack of knowledge about how our 
bodies properly work. Um, and yes, there's some problems there. But I personally believe the seeds of divorce are sometimes planted, nurtured, harvested in the delivery room as mom's giving birth more than what's happening in the bedroom. People want to get married. They want to have a family. They want to have it go well. They want to be in love and then have a happy family life. Most people, that's their goal when they get married. What young couples are often unprepared for is the fallout that sometimes happens around a hospital birth, especially a botched hospital birth where the mom is needlessly cut up and drugged and then left completely depleted as she has to nurture this newborn. And moms are strong. Moms are tough. They rise to the occasion over and over. And they manage to work through that trauma. And they take care of their babies. And mostly they're just happy to have a baby. And this is what comes screaming up the mom, you know, in the years after the baby's born. I'm happy. I'm happy as with my life. I'm grateful for this baby. The, the post-traumatic stress that we see cropping up with moms in later years that's completely tied to the trauma they experienced during birth. It is this trauma that is so disabling and destructive for young couples. And some of them cannot overcome the traumas. And dads are traumatized by hospital birth too. It really leaves an impact. And the economic costs and the shame and guilt that men feel for all the things that their wives have to go through while they're having the babies. In some men, this is also unquantifiable. They, some men find it impossible to have an erection after watching their wives go through the degradations of a hospital birth. That's some serious bedroom trouble, if that's the level of trauma. And yet there it is. So how do we fix it? How do we how do we improve things for couples who fall in love and get married and, and feel like their life is just starting and they, they want to live this happy existence? How do we help them? Well, we have to tell the truth. We have to tell the honest truth. And the bottom line is in the medical schools where our doctors, midwives and nurses are trained, they teach a style of childbirth that is the absolute most horrific way for a baby to be born. And then through the media, people are taught that this is, this is what you do. Mom laying flat on her back, legs up in the air, doctor pulling with forceps, pulling the baby out, or mom's wheeled into the surgical unit and she's cut open and the baby's expelled. And this is, these are your choices. You either have a vaginal cesarean where you get cut up and messed with in every possible way, or you have a C-section where they cut you open and pull the baby out. Both of those styles of birth are traumatic for the mom and needlessly harmful and cause, again, morbidity, if not death, for the mom and sometimes the baby. So how do we change the culture? How do we change what, what the staff and the professionals are taught. There are many, many professionals who are pushing back against this model and for decades have tried to 
to bring change, significant change. And in many cultures and places, there's, there's been success in various clinics and smaller hospitals and home birth is a thing around the world. Moms are just saying, screw it, I'm doing it myself. And they do with great success. But how do we change the culture? How do we change and flip things to say the way we're doing it is needlessly harmful to families? It's way too expensive and we need to fix it. And the answer is free markets, freedom of choice. No repercussions for the couple if they have a, quote, failure during a home birth. If a young couple decides they want to have an autonomous birth, and not have anyone in the home with them, and just have that baby, there should be no investigations by CPS. There should be no judgment from them, from society. They should be given their autonomous freedom, guaranteed by the Constitution, the United States Constitution, which guarantees the pursuit of happiness and all of us having life and liberty. So under that banner of freedom, Young families should be encouraged to adopt this way of birth. I'm going to share my story now to help you explain why we made this decision. When I gave birth to my first baby, the only research I did about location was I went and found a doctor who was a uh, osteopath, a little bit more natural approach, osteopath obstetrician in Detroit and I wanted to give birth at the same hospital where I had been born which was Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan that was it I read a few books about birth I took a childbirth class a Lamaze class that was offered just through the community and three weeks before my daughter's birth I was just feeling kind of frantic because I didn't know anything I didn't feel like I was ready And so I prayed, like I always do. I prayed, Father, guide my paths. Help me to know what to do. And he encouraged me to go to an old library where I still had a library card. And in Farmington Hills, Michigan, I lived there for a year and I just had a library card. And I went to the library in Farmington Hills. And I had made a beeline for the birth books, which again, is what I do. I love to read. And a title of one of the books caught my eye, Husband, Coach, Childbirth. And it caught my eye because I thought, well, I'd love to have my husband coaching me or helping me in some significant way. So I grabbed this book written by Dr. Robert Bradley and also another book next to it called Natural Childbirth, The Bradley Way. This book was a paperback and it was obvious that the book had attended several births because it was dog-eared and it looked like it had been dropped in some water and uh, it had been used by whoever previously had read it. So I took these two books home, and over the three weeks before my birth, I read them both three times. And I started practicing the relaxation techniques that were taught in the Natural Childbirth, the Bradley Way book, and uh, did my crash course on natural childbirth. During those three weeks, I seriously thought about having a home birth, but I felt like we had invested so much time and energy into my relationship with my obstetrician, and my husband certainly did not feel comfortable with it, uh, that we decided to have a hospital birth. That being said, I stayed home for most of my labor. 
And at one point I looked at my husband and my mom who was with us. And I said, can't we just do it here in our little apartment in Madison Heights, Michigan, 50 feet from I-75? This apartment, it was such a hole. There was just cigarette smoke and cat dander and just the nasty smells of old apartments surrounding us. And then the exhaust from I-75 traffic. It was just, you know, the worst place to, to even think about giving birth to a baby. But I still wanted to do it in my own space, my own bed. And they both just looked at me like, are you nuts? And I was like, all right, all right, I'll go over to the hospital. So we went to the hospital. And over a couple of hours, I clawed my way, literally clawed my way to a natural birth. And when all was said and done and my daughter was born, my obstetrician looked at me and goes, oh, you did it. And he was surprised, you know, because I had told him I want to have this natural birth, no drugs, no surgery, no episiotomy. That's where they cut the mom as the baby's coming out. I just want to give birth. And he's like, well, I guess you can try. And it was funny because at the point where I started pushing, they, they had said they had a birth room at this hospital with a modern day birth bed that allowed you to squat. So I said to the staff, you know, I'm pushing. Where's the squat bar? Because they have this bar. They attach the bed that you can hold on to. They didn't even know how to install it on the on the birthing bed. And I came to find out later that this hospital had a 50% C-section rate. It was a high-risk hospital in Detroit that was the regional high-risk center for three states, you know, Michigan, Ohio, and, and Indiana. So they were flying in babies from all over uh, that part of the c country to use their high-tech stuff. 50% C-section rate back in 1988. I didn't know any of that. It was also a teaching hospital affiliated with the University of Michigan. So you had all these young interns coming in and observing and learning. And I didn't know how uh, problematic teaching hospitals were to give birth in. Uh, and during my labor, I, I definitely had these interns coming in. And they're using my body to teach how to do a vaginal exam and what a contraction feels like. I felt like a real guinea pig in this situation that I'm, I'm being trained on and what the heck. And when I complained about this later to my, my aunt, she was like, well, it's a teaching hospital. And I was like, what's a teaching hospital? I don't even know what that means. And so I didn't feel like I was supported in my complaints after the birth. I had some major issues with how it went down. But at the end of the day, I was happy to be a mom and happy to welcome our oldest daughter into our life. And I considered it a great blessing to um, just have the experience of giving birth. I did it with no drugs. It was a total triumph. And I was happy with the outcome. Three months later, we moved from Michigan to Ohio during the dead of winter and uh, settled in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is a, a very hippie community down in Ohio. Dave Chappelle is from Yellow Springs, Ohio. And it has a bit of a reputation as being a place where hippies and um, just, you know, kind of that crowd hang out. It actually was a hub for the Underground Railroad back in the day. And the, the town itself still had uh, probably like a third of the residents were black and were descendants of some of these people who had escaped slavery and provided the, the railroad option. And so it has a reputation of being a place of, you know, egalitarianism and big heartedness and abolitionist views. And I think that just translated it into it becoming a intellectual hub with Antioch College there, one of the most liberal uh, universities in America. 
And when we moved there, we didn't know any of that. My husband had been transferred with his company and we just found a cheap apartment. But um, it was a great place for us to live for the two years we were there. Made a lot of good friends. But in that little town, I had a postpartum psychosis. And uh, the stress of the move, my childhood traumas, and just um, new motherhood kicked me in the kicked me in the head, and I lost my mind. I was on the streets in my underwear, singing Mormon hymns, casting Satan out of the world. When the police picked me up, and I ended up in a mental institution for the next six weeks. I lived with my parents for five weeks after that. And I was completely medicated by the psychiatrists I interfaced with. Uh, my mom wanted us to move back to Michigan. She really pressured us. And my my husband's company was like, do you need to come home? Do you need to come back to Michigan? And it was I who said, no, I want to go back and figure this out myself. So we went back to our little apartment in Ohio with our daughter and me with my, my bag of drugs and uh, proceeded with life. I spent most of that year on my couch, uh, taking my meds, and every day about 3 o'clock I'd put my daughter on my bike and we'd go for a bike ride down to a local grocery store and I would buy about a buck fifty, two bucks worth of chocolate and I would eat the chocolate and then I would go home and that was my day. I'd make a little food for supper and you know, my husband was very helpful with getting up and feeding our daughter before he left, I gave her the bare minimum of care. I shudder to think of me taking care of her so medicated. I, I could barely think. And it was just a, a year that I remember as just kind of laying on the couch a lot, watching television. Uh, after about a year of this existence, I had had enough. And again, I got down on my knees and I said, you know, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to get better. And Father, I know you know how for me to get better, and I want you to show me the way. And he did. And it started with finding a new psychiatrist. I found a woman down in Cincinnati about an hour drive away. And as I met with her and talked with her and told her my hopes and dreams for having more children, for uh, living a life sovereign, not tied to medications, and just wanting to be a mom, um, she encouraged me. She helped me to wean off of all the medications I was on. Uh, they had put me on lithium and told me I would be on that for the rest of my life. They had put me on Prozac, and I had Haldol and Stelazine, a heavy-duty cocktail of drugs. And one by one, she helped me to wean off of all of my meds. And this is so important for those who have been put on these medications. You cannot stop psychiatric meds cold turkey. You just can't do it. You will have a rebound psychosis, end up back in the hospital, all of your family and friends surrounding you saying, you're crazy, you're mentally ill, you have to stay on your meds. You have to work with a professional and wean off of your medications. It's so important. It's the key to getting off of them, doing it step by step. It took me months to get off the drugs. And the last time I took a Prozac pill, couple days later, I felt the mania building. I felt myself getting crazy. And just knowing that it was a possibility helped me to just know, I know what this is. I'm okay. And we, we made it through that most difficult first week without me having an episode that necessitated a hospitalization. And that was a great blessing because it upped my confidence and it told me I could do this.
I, I then spent a year working with Chinese herbs, homeopathics, and nutrition to try and find some semblance of health. And during that year, I just kind of let my body go where it needed to go. I tried to stop eating the chocolate every day. I knew that was damaging. And I just tried to eat healthier. And then I was taking these herbs from Sunrider. And they were very powerful. And they helped me to detox and rebalance my, my systems. And I just felt better taking all these herbs. And after a year or so, I started telling my husband, you know, I think I, I, think I could have another baby. What do you think? You know, I really wanted to have a family. I was happy with one daughter, but I wanted to have more children and just live as a normal family, welcoming our kids as they came and just, you know, having a life. And he was so nervous. He was so scared. He just didn't know if we could do it. That first year of our marriage had been so happy and joyful with this baby coming. And, and then the second year was like this never-ending hellscape that we had so many bills and we were so overwhelmed with parenting. And this was not how it was supposed to look. This was not how it was supposed to be. And so my husband took a leap of faith with me and we got pregnant with our second daughter. And we both went through that pregnancy so scared. And the people around us were scared, our family, our friends, people who knew what had happened to me. Everybody was nervous. You see that commercial of the mom doing the pregnancy test and her husband's so excited and, oh, this is the best thing. It was not like that for us. It was very tenuous and scary. And during that pregnancy, we moved twice. My husband found a job out in Boulder, Colorado, but we had to do a temporary duty in Nebraska and Omaha for six months. And so we had two major moves during my pregnancy, which also kind of upped the stress factor. But we did these moves and settled into our apartment in Boulder, the only place we could find. It was twice as expensive as Ohio. So we moved to this, this hole in the ground in, in Boulder. It was on the third floor. It was a third floor walk-up. And the, the people who had lived there before us had been evicted. And the place was just trashed. When you move to a college town in October, it is really hard to find housing, especially low-income housing, because all the students have just snatched it up. And so this is the only place we could find within our budget. And it was even more than we had anticipated having to pay anyway by like $200. So again, financial crunch, disgusting place to live, um, and a baby coming. And you know what? That is so many young couples' reality. You get married with all these hopes of having the little cottage and a couple of kids running around and a yard and the fence and just that life. And it was like, again, so far removed of what our hopes and dreams were for our family life. But, you know, you just make the best of things. Walking up those two flights of stairs every day was really good for my lungs. It helped prepare me for birth. Sometimes my little two-year-old daughter wanted me to carry her up the stairs because she was afraid of the cats. And it was like, okay, nobody else is here to carry this kid. I'm seven months pregnant. I've got to walk up these stairs. And I did it. And it strengthened me. So our trials sometimes are not necessarily bad, uh, but it was a trial. And as we got closer and closer to the birth, I was really nervous. 
I was afraid that I would give birth and then wake up in a mental hospital and not remember what had happened to me. And the Heavenly Father comforted my heart, but it was a very scary time for both me and for my husband. My mom flew out to help us and was with us for three weeks. And I ended up having a C-section because my daughter was breached. And um, we did do 20 hours of the labor at home, but we finally went to the hospital. And when they said what they wanted to do to allow me to have a regular birth, they said, no, I don't want to do all that. And uh, and I, I was the one who said, let's just take her by C-section. So we did. And so I had to recover from a surgery, which as bad as that is, uh, it was actually much easier recovery than the one I'd had, the one I'd had previously with a regular birth, because I, I didn't have the long, really difficult labor like I had with my oldest daughter. So we, we recovered and we went day by day after that baby came kind of walking on eggshells, you know, constantly checking in. Am I Okay. Am I holding it together? Am I having any crazy thoughts? And it was just steady as she goes, you know. I'm breastfeeding this baby. I'm taking care of a toddler. And the first day that my husband went back to work, my mom had stayed with us for two weeks after the birth while my husband went back to work. And then he stayed home for an additional week. But then that day came when she was three weeks old and he had to go back to work. And I'll never forget this moment. He walked out the door and my two-year-old started to cry. Shelly started to cry. And then the baby, three-week-old Allison, she started to cry. Then I started to cry. And all three of us were crying. We all had a good cry together. And then it stopped, and we all looked at each other, and I was like, well, I guess we'll just go forward. <laughs> and from that day to this, my oldest daughter's 34. My daughters and I have had many moments when we had a good cry together. I like to say that most of the time, we've had a good laugh together. We've tried to find the funny in life and in our situations together. But those two girls are still my best friends. I cherish them both. And we have good times together. And it just cracks me up that the first time we were truly alone together, we were all weeping. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. Anyway, that was how I started life with my two girls. And with those two girls, I went through the next year and the year after that, and I didn't break down. I didn't have any more mania, no psychosis, no true depression, disabling depression. We just lived. We went to the park every day. We cooked together. We ate our meals. Dad came home from work, climbed up those three flights of stairs, and we lived, you know. When my third son, my third child came, he was a boy, uh, we had moved into another apartment in that same building down on the ground floor, and that was better. I didn't have to climb those stairs with two kids in my arms. So I went through my pregnancy with Jeff, and during Jeff's pregnancy, uh, we did finally manage to get things together to put some money down on a little house. And so we were so excited because we were going to start our, our life in the house. And we didn't feel like we could buy a real house. It was a townhouse, but it was a good starter home in Louisville, Colorado. And we were so excited. Our son was seven weeks old when we signed the paperwork on that house. It was going to be brand spanking new, all new appliances. And to a homemaker, having a new fridge, it, it's everything. I was not going to have to clean out anybody else's sconge from an old fridge and put my food in there. It's going to be brand new. I felt like I had just won everything a woman can win to get that brand new space. And even though it was delayed for about a year and as they built it, we would go over there and walk around the building and imagine things as this will be your bedroom. And it was so fun to go through that year anticipating our new house. And when we moved in, Jeff was about a year old 
three little kids and it was like life was good life was really good and we wondered if we were done we wondered if this was enough you know three kids is great and um we kind of decided you know i think we're done if we do it again if we have another child we're going to wait because three kids under five is very stressful in fact i would suggest most young couples it's the year that that third baby shows up that is the most difficult and it is because you're outnumbered. It's three to two, you know, you have to go from a man to man with, with the two kids to a zone defense. When you have three, you got these three kids, there's only two adults and there's so much work to do. It's physical and you're not getting enough sleep and the money's crunching and you know, it's just a difficult time. And so I encourage young, young couples as that third baby comes to not make any plans that year. Don't plan to move. Don't plan to do any vacations, just sit tight and do the dailies food, sleep, naps, go to the park, you know, keep your life as simple as you can. And I think it will go better for you if you do that. Well, there came a day as so many days have come in my life when I was at the temple in Denver and I had a prompting. I actually had a visitation. I've only had a couple of visitations in my life, but this one was real. And I'm sitting there in the celestial room in the temple and uh, this this spirit comes to me, and I didn't see him, but I heard I felt his presence. I heard him say, um, "I'd like you to be my mother, and I need if I'm going to have you be my mother, I need to come soon, because you know it's just important that I be born soon. Will, will you be my mother?" And I was I was gobsmacked. I'd never had any experience like that, and it was it was like, really oh, okay, you know I guess I'll I'll think about it. Um, and as I drove home from the temple that day, um, there was this storm, you know, just torrential downpour to the point where I, I was hydroplaning on certain parts of I-70 and, you know, it was, it was freaky, this storm that hit as I was driving home and the storm really was like how I was feeling, you know, the storm of like, can I do it? I don't know if I can do it. Can I do it really? You know? And, um. It took a couple of months for me to mention this to my husband because I, I really did not think we could do it. I, if we felt so overwhelmed, my health was not that great. And, um, you know, there came a day when I had this impression, you, if you want the blessing of having this soul as part of your family, you need to go talk to your husband right now about this. And so I, I brought it up to Paul. I said, I really feel like I want to have another baby. And he, he got so mad at me. Every time I make a decision, you change your mind, blah, blah, blah. He was really angry. And I said, you know, I just, I just think it would be, you know, great to just have another baby. And I didn't tell him about my spiritual impression. Sometimes when I would share my spiritual impressions with my family or my husband, they took that as evidence that I was going crazy because so much of my psychosis was a religious based. And so if I talked about impressions or promptings from the Holy Spirit or Jesus or whatever, um, that was used as evidence against me when I was in front of a judge. And so, and the judge was the one who made me take all the drugs. So I was always a little bit skittish about talking about spiritual things too much to anyone because, you know, it was used against me. Anyway, I, um, I told him that I, I wanted to do this. I had pretty much determined that I was all in. I'm going to do it. And I had, I had decided 
that if I had had another child, oh, Jeff was born in a hospital, just so you know. I had a vaginal birth after a cesarean. They call that a VBAC. And uh, it went great. I was able to do it, and it really restored a lot of my confidence in my body. I also didn't have any true mental problems after Jeff's birth. So Andrew's coming. We get pregnant. And again, we had the traumatic experience of me showing my husband the, the pregnancy test. And there's a baby coming and him looking like he wanted to die. <laughs> this is a young husband and father. This is how they feel sometimes. Overwhelmed overworked, you know, and when I think about my husband's relationship with our son, Andrew, now, I just get overwhelmed with, with joy because they're so close and such good pals. And, you know, the idea of this person not being a part of our family, it just guts me. If I had said, no, I can't do it. I don't have the faith. I don't think I can do it physically, you know. We would have turned our backs on so much good and so much light and joy. And because we said, yes, you know, let's do this, you know, never ending joy and happiness. And so um, I want to encourage any of you out there, husbands or wives who are thinking about having another child, but you're scared, you know, don't be afraid of your children. Just don't be afraid of your kids. They are coming with joy and happiness so I went through my pregnancy with Andrew and I had decided if I did another pregnancy, I was going to do my own prenatal care and give birth alone because I was done with hospital birth. So I did. I didn't talk about it too much to too many people. I had a few close friends who were in the loop, but mostly people just saw me as a pregnant woman with three little kids and having a baby. Um, I did get into a little bit of hot water when he, he delayed. Most babies are born around 40 weeks. But Andrew decided to come at 45 weeks. So those final weeks of my pregnancy, I felt like hiding in a cave because there were certain people who expected him to be born in August and he waited until September. And so it was like, you're still pregnant? What's going on? Hasn't your doctor induced you yet? Well, I don't have a doctor. I didn't tell them that. But, you know, some people knew what was going on and started to get nervous. I was getting nervous. I was like, when are you going to come out? Anyway, he was born 45 weeks to the day at home. And after his birth, I hemorrhaged and we could not get him to breathe. He turned blue. He was suffocating and it was very, very scary. So we called 911 and, you know, within we lived a mile from the fire department. And within a minute, we had people banging on our door, coming in, trying to help. And I still weep when I think about all those people who dropped everything on that Saturday morning to come and help my husband and I with this birth. It just, it overwhelms my heart with gratitude and joy at the help that they offered to us. And they quickly took us to the hospital. I got a transfusion. They airlifted Andy down to Press St. Luke's so he could be in a high-risk neonatal unit. And there he stayed for three days. And when we when we managed to make it back home, we were, you know, a little weary and, and kind of kicked to the curb because of everything that had gone down. But but we lived, we both lived, and I give God all the glory for that and competent help at the hospital. And then again, we, we moved on, you know, there are the dailies, you have, they have dishes to do, we have laundry to do, we have children who need to be fed. And I was breastfeeding two small, small kids, I 
tandem nurse, my two-year-old and my newborn. And I had to eat, you know, four or 5,000 calories a day just to get the enough food in my body to make the milk. And so the, my life became this rotation of, you know, eating the food, breastfeeding the kids and just living my life. And as each day clicked by, I got more and more confident. Like, I, I think I'm holding it together. I think I'm okay. And we had this this amazing baby who had just entered our our family circle. And we loved that kid so much. What a joy Andrew was. He just was so filled with light and love. And um, he was a peacemaker. He brought a lot of peace into our... My, my second daughter and my oldest son are kind of wired. And uh, they were always kind of going at it, sibling rivalry and making our home life interesting. Andy shows up and he's just peaceful. And boy, that was a gift for our family to have this peaceful, quiet soul into our hearts and our home. And then um, we went through six years where I did have two early miscarriages during those six years, but I um, I didn't feel like I could have any more kids. We, we were really done with four. And um, I again had a visitation. Here's Here's this little soul. I'm going through a really dark time. I had just started remembering in 2001, uh, Family pattern, sexual abuse, incest, trauma, started healing from that after my brother, my oldest brother died, or my brother just above me. I have three older brothers, but the brother just above me died of a drug overdose. And I, um, I started remembering and it was during this melee of the, you know, cacophony of, of, of traumatic experiences that I again get this visitation from another person saying, Hey, you can't kill yourself because I was suicidal. You can't kill, kill yourself because I want you to be my mom. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? I am, I am like at the worst of the worst right now. And you want me to pull it together to go through a pregnancy and a birth? What are you thinking? But it planted a seed in my heart that if there was somebody out there in the ether who wanted me to, to be his mother, maybe I wasn't as sick as I thought. And, and maybe I could do it. And maybe he would be a blessing, as big of a blessing as his older brother had been. So for a couple of months, you know, I thought about that. And then it was like, okay, let's just go for it. And here's here's this fifth and final baby, my little Ben, showing up in our life. And again, I made the decision to do my own prenatal care and give birth at home. By this time, I'd been teaching childbirth for eight years I had immersed myself in the literature of home birth. I'd become close friends with quite a few free birthers, unassisted birthers. And I just knew this was how my son Ben was supposed to be born. I could feel it in my soul. And during those six years, I had learned a lot about what caused my hemorrhage after the birth of my fourth baby. And I had determined that um, it was liver toxicity that was the problem. Like my liver and gallbladder were so full of debris that my body had a really hard time clotting. And so you get in this situation where you're, some blood's coming out and it's just, you know, becomes a flood. Uh, it's because my body couldn't clot properly. And so I did a series of liver cleanses, liver and gallbladder cleanses. And if you just Google liver gallbladder cleanse, you'll find the protocol that I use. It's the Holda Clark classic cleanse that's olive oil, grapefruit juice, uh, you take some Epsom salt soap and everything up, 
and then put in this infusion of olive oil and grapefruit juice, and it just kind of pushes the stones through. And so during my um, six-year span, when I was uh, between pregnancies, I did like 35 of these liver cleanses and moved just thousands and thousands of stones out of my system. And what I've learned is that people who have the type of food allergies and chemical sensitivities and skin problems and asthma that I have, this is often indicative of a toxic liver. And you can really help your symptoms by doing these intense cleanses. And so I did. And during Ben's pregnancy, there was one day when I was um, feeling like I should do a liver cleanse, but I really didn't feel like drinking that olive oil thing. And I just wanted to eat my regular meals because you have to kind of fast for a day or two when you do it. And I had this witness from the Holy Spirit that if I would do that on that particular day, I would not have to worry about hemorrhaging again. So this was my own personal revelation from the master physician who knows me, my body, and my situation better than anybody, better than any doctor, giving me counsel on how to help myself and my baby and my family by not having another hemorrhage. So I was like, give me that grapefruit juice and olive oil. I did it happily. And it was wonderful to feel like I was being guided and how to prevent certain things and also how to come up with the healthiest baby. You know, who wants to have a hemorrhage after you give birth? Women die from these things. You know, I wanted to be here. So I had several other nudges like that around my nutrition and exercise. But mostly I just used common sense during that pregnancy. If I felt sleepy, I took a nap. If I felt like I was getting dehydrated, I rehydrated. And again, I was focused on the dailies of cooking and cleaning and doing dishes and laundry. I had a very active pregnancy. I did aerobics, prenatal aerobics, right up until he, uh, my water broke with him three days before he was born. And I went for walks every day and took my kids to the park and just did my life. And... um when he was born, it was such a miracle because, again, we were sort of still a little bit cautious because of what had happened after Andy's birth. And you never have a, a sure thing. You never have a guarantee that all will be well. And I think that's by design. You know, in the book of Timothy, it talks about how women will be saved in childbearing if they remain sober and they're faithful. And, you know, that gives a whole list of qualities that you want to have to have the Lord preserve your life. Uh, but there's no guarantee that, that you'll, you'll make it through this valley of the shadow of death to bring your, your baby to the other side. Many women die. And so I knew that. I understand that. Lord have mercy. I've had everybody in my life tell me that that was a potential for me having a home birth. It's, it's funny because I'm part of a congregation of women who I got very close with these women. And after Andrew was born, they kind of, Oh, you know, they didn't shove it in my face. Honestly, they were very kind. They brought meals and they wanted to help and it was great. But I did have just about every single woman in that congregation kind of sidle up to me um, during the six years. And especially when I got pregnant with Ben and say, uh, you know, Jen, uh, you had a hemorrhage. Remember that? Are you planning to have another home birth? They were really curious to know if we were going to have another home birth. And I was a little bit evasive and vague. Because I felt like where I gave birth was my own private business. But um, 
it's so funny how people just feel the need. I was like, do you ever feel the need to go tap some woman on the shoulder who's planning to get an epidural and explain to her all the dangers and difficulties of having that drug, which is a cocaine type drug ripping through her system while she's giving birth? Do you ever, do you ever worry about her? I worry about her and her baby, but do you ever worry about her to the point where you'd go kind of, kind of set her straight, set her straight? Would you do that? So, you know, this was what was in my heart as these busybodies were inserting themselves into my private medical choices, but it was all done very lovingly and with deep concern, and I don't blame them in the least. But um, with Ben, you know, my water broke three days before he was born, and I had never had that happen before. Um, Andrew was actually born in the call, which means the water never broke. When he came out, it, it was completely encased around his head. And then it, as he was born, it just kind of broke open. But um, with the water breaking, that was new territory. And there are certain laws that kick in in Colorado, at least back in the day, especially for home birth midwives, that if the baby's, if the water has broken, you need to scoot over to the hospital within 24 hours of the water breaking and hand. The midwives are literally bound by law to hand over these births to an obstetrician because there is more danger of infection and the baby aspirating meconium and so that they have that law for good reason. And then there's also an, a second law that says that if a child is, is, is at 42 weeks gestation, again, the midwives are compelled by law to hand over that case to an obstetrician. If it goes into the 43-week mark, they have concerns about the deterioration of the placenta, low, low amniotic fluid, and uh, they will often induce at 42 weeks if, if a mom goes to that, that place in her pregnancy. With Ben, it was like he was thumbing his nose at those laws and the profession and their notions of what is normal and good and right because my water broke on day 42, 42 weeks to the day, and then he didn't come out for three days. So... Both laws kicked in. I felt like I was not under any, any sort of legal or uh, even emotional requirement to adhere to those laws. I'm not a midwife. I've never claimed to be a midwife. I am a mother autonomously living my life, making the choices that I feel are best for me and my children. And during those three days, I was very prayerful. Do I need to go to the hospital? Do I need to do anything? You know, what's best for me? What's best for this baby? And all I felt was stay home. During those days, I had my daughters give me what's called a raindrop therapy, which is a um, essential oils application that you do on the spine. It's incredibly antibacterial and antiviral. I had them do that for three days each day. And I also had my husband go pick me up some wheatgrass juice and I would drink four ounces of wheatgrass juice every day, those three days. Again, oxygenating, healing, killing bacteria and viruses in my bloodstream. Incredibly powerful, super nutrient. And then I just ate my regular meals. When I finally went into labor with Ben, about six hours before he was born, October 24th, 2002, he was born at straight up midnight. So we, we gave him a birthday of October 25th. But... um. When I went into labor, I felt so good. I felt so confident. I was like, I have got this. 
you know, and it just, it was such a miracle to be at that place of autonomy and self-reliance when I consider who I had been just a very short 12 years before as a new mother, struggling as a mental patient, struggling with my health. I have all these autoimmune diseases and they're being, they're, they're giving me diagnosis of mental illness and I had, I've struggled with my pregnancies. I've struggled with this hemorrhage and, you know, the different things that crop up when you're young parents. But here we were at this place of comfortably welcoming our son into our own home without feeling the need to reach out to anyone for help. It was incredibly empowering. In fact, I think that night after, you know, our wedding day, which was the most joyful day of our lives, the night that Benjamin was born was definitely one of those top of the mountain moments where you just feel like you are in the zone. And I just went through my labor like, you know, it was no big deal. At one point, Paul left to go read stories to the kids. And I got up and walked over to the kids' bedroom. We had two sets of bunk beds for the kids upstairs. It's our townhouse at the time only had two bedrooms. We eventually finished the basement and put the girls down in their own space. But at the time, you know, we just had two sets of bunk beds. The kids were all asleep. And there's my husband zonked out on the floor asleep. And I started chuckling because I didn't need him at that moment. And he's asleep. And I just went back to my room and continued my labor all alone. I did a lot of singing during that labor. And when he woke up and came in, he said, what do you need? And I said, sing to me. So Paul poured out, pulled out our Mormon hymn book and started singing all of my favorite hymns. He has a beautiful tenor voice, an Irish tenor voice. And so he started singing these hymns. And it was perfect. That was all I needed. My husband, my lover, the father of our kids, singing to me, invited the Holy Spirit dispelled any fear coming from any source, and it made my birth a sacred space that nobody was able to penetrate with their darkness, their ne negativity, their um, busybody notions of how it should go in the hospital. All those staff, they're so willing to kind of tell you what, what to do and how to do it, and I think this, and a lot of fear-mongering. And it was really that, that kind of fearful place around my third birth, you know, which was at the hospital, that I was like, you know what, I am so done with this. I want to be in a space where nobody's second guessing me, where people are, or, or my husband's willing to go the distance with me. In the hospital, they're constantly trying to hurry you up. Well, let's speed things up. Let's get that baby born. Let's do this. Let's do that. No, I want this child to come as it's ready to come, you know? And if I had been even with a home birth midwife, I would have been at the hospital two days before being induced, and I didn't want to do anything to hurry him out. So as Paul's singing to me, I felt the need to push. I stood up. I had a birth ball. This is just a regular yoga ball. I had a birth ball in my bedroom, and I was still dressed. I still had clothes on, and I stood up, and I started pushing, and in between contractions, I sat on the birth ball, and I gave birth standing up in a semi-squat. As my baby was born, my husband stepped behind me. He caught him and handed him to me, and I laid down on our bed. And out of the corner of my eye, I looked over, and Paul was leaping for joy, jumping for joy. 
We did it. He's here. You know, it was just something. And I'll never forget it. And after that birth, we, you know, just had family time. All four of our older kids woke up one by one and came into the room. And we had this this circle of love and joy around our new baby. For about three hours, we sang to him. We gave him a little bath and um, just welcomed him home, welcomed him here. And then one by one, my kids went back to sleep. And by 3 a.m., my husband and I fell asleep with this baby in our bed with us. And that was it. He was here. We did it. No drama. No firemen. No police. It, it worked. And after his birth, I went through a couple of weeks. I had hired a postpartum doula to come in and take care of me for six weeks after the birth. And so the next day she showed up with hot food, ready to offer me massage and help and gave me this amazing Ayurvedic care, which is based on the traditional medicine of India. And I was pampered in a way that I have never before or since experienced. And I think if families could change their mindset from all of the healthcare dollars, focusing on the birth itself, you know, tens of thousands of dollars now around the actual birth, whether it's a surgical birth or the baby ends up in a NICU or mom has complications, there's often tens of thousands of dollars generated around the births. If families could think of that money being spent on postpartum care, let's bring in someone to help with the older children. Let's bring in someone to help with the cooking and cleaning. Uh, the Ayurvedic model is they take care of the mother so that the mother can more appropriately care for her baby. And the mother does nothing for a couple of weeks. She just recovers from the birth. That That is tradition in so many cultures for the mom to have weeks, if not months, to recover from a birth before she's, you know, it's assumed that she will resume her normal daily schedule in life. It was 11 days that I stayed in my bedroom and allowed people to take care of me after that birth, before I even went down into my own kitchen. 11 days I stayed, I was either in my bedroom or my bathroom taking a shower. And that was a gift that helped me to heal like nothing else. And when I went back to church, when uh, Ben was three weeks old, one of my friends who also had five children, she came up, she said, you do not, you do not look like a postpartum mom who just had her fifth baby. And it was because of that tender, nurturing care, and also the lack of trauma during the birth, the lack of drugs. You know, I had nourished myself with good food, wheatgrass juice, the oils, and then after, for six weeks, I had just this amazing care. Better care for the infant when mom's feeling good. And no incidents of postpartum emotional illness. It was just joy. I definitely struggled physically after that birth because I was reconciling a lot of abuse. And various things came up right then during the weeks that Ben was postpartum. But it did not disable me. And quite often these memories processed while I was on the massage table getting a massage from my doula. And she was great. She knew that I was a sexual abuse survivor, 
She recognized that the six-week window was a potential time for me to be healing. And as things would come up, she would say things like, oh, I knew, I knew that you were processing something right then. And I was able to deal with a lot of stuff during that six-week window of healing. So that's my birth story. And from Ben's birth to today, which has been almost 20 years, I have been on a mission from God to encourage and teach anyone who's interested childbirth self-reliance. And I don't care if you come to this because you're a prepper or because you think it makes sense financially or you think it's healthier for the mom and the baby. Whatever reason you come to this, claim it. Claim it for yourself. It is literally the most revolutionary thing you can do to own your health and own the health of your family. And the waves, the waves of enlightenment that will come down on your family. Even if you have a kid who's like, you know what? I just want to do everything the hospital recommends. I want to have the, the hospital birth and use all the medications. And if I get depressed, I'm taking the antidepressant, giving my kids all the vaccines and antibiotics. Even if your child chooses to do all of that, they still have this other model that they grew up with and they experienced. And there's a lot of um, benefit in comparing and contrasting outcomes. How's that working out for you? Do you feel like you're doing okay? Babies are incredibly resilient. They can experience all these drugs and still come out just fine or seemingly fine afterwards. And so it's tenuous to say, well, if you just have a home birth, it'll solve all your problems because it's not true. You know, you could have 10 other problems you never anticipated, including a visit from CPS, which we did have after our fourth birth. Very scary. That was one of the most scary weekends of my life. Are these people going to come in and take my kids away because I had a botched home birth? That's a real concern. So every couple has to decide what their priorities are, how they're going to birth the babies, how they're going to medicate them or not medicate them, feed them, educate them. And it is your privilege as a husband and wife to do this and make these decisions. And I hope the wise couples will figure out some of these issues before they even get married, because it will really help down the road prevent a lot of the warring. You know, we see literal wars. This mom does not want the children to be vaccinated. The dad does. They get divorced over it, and the courts always side with the dad. They always go with the drug industrialists. That mom's crazy. She wants to deprive her kid. She's a medical neglector. And then you have this dad over here who gets custody of the kids and vaccinates all of them, and then the the war just goes on, and it, it grows, and it explodes. And this is the thing we need to grapple with as a society. William, I'm so glad you came back. I'm pretty much, I'm pretty much done monologuing it. Do you have some thoughts? William's so good to show up to my shows just when I need a good drink. So I'm going to Go ahead and hydrate myself. Looks like he probably got bumped out of the room and is working his way back in. And that's probably exactly what happened. Go ahead and hit it again. See if we can get you up here. William I and I have noticed that uh, there have been some shenanigans with my show. Welcome, William. <laughs> do, you, do you have thoughts? Shenanigans. Ha-cha-cha-cha-cha. 
Yeah. Remember Jimmy Durante? We start singing and dancing, and somebody doesn't like what we're saying. That's right. We're dancing the truth. We're singing the truth. They're, they're, they're doing the shuffle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, thanks. I, what I did, too, you'll see, I text in. I learned how to do that. Obviously, it works. And, and I posted um, a bunch of links of, you know that are relevant. Obviously, we both know uh, about uh, Nancy Schaefer. You talked about CPS. We know about Brandy Vaughn. You talk about Merck and vaccines, and and you know I I don't need to cover that. You know it and and cover. Well, thank it. you. These these yeah. links are awesome. My gosh. Now there's I, one there a, that I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just a question for you before we proceed. How many yeah. hours did that epically long show go last night? <laughs> I don't know. I think I became delusional and fell asleep. But no, I'm only kidding. I was sleepwalking, sleep talking. Because <laughs> it was a wee hours. I think it was six hours or something. Was it six? Because I, I, I logged off because I had to go to sleep. But at that point, it was six hours. And I was like, I am just amazed at this marathon. Because I think you were hosting the whole time, weren't you? Yeah, well, Shaw uh, had a cutout, but then he cut back in periodically. And then the last caller, um, you know, he came late, so we covered some of the 9-11 issues again and then many other topics. And there was a lot of good heated debate from very intelligent people. It got a little heated, but um, I think it was productive regarding, you know, capitalism versus Marxism versus, you know, communism. Yeah, no, it, there's, good, yeah. there's good that comes from the heat. We should never be afraid of the, the heated conversation because those are the, the conversations of the heart. You know, we all feel strongly about these things. And I was listening when that communism versus capitalism conversation was happening. And it's it's my contention. There's so much health in just talking, just discussing. Yep. You know, we need to talk. So kudos to oh. you. It was a great show. What I heard of it. Did they let you publish? Well, Shaw said uh, he... What he concluded, see, he has some device. He's a good IT guy, Shaw. And uh, that was Sky, that's S K K E, I'm sorry, S K E Y E watch. Uh, that he does, what he, he does one with his friend Chris. That's how we learned about one another. But he's like, I know IT, Bill, I can help you. I'm like, great. So he has some device that he says has a much bigger memory. And after the show, he said, they gave him the option to edit and publish. So he's going to work on that. Um, you know, I leave that in his hands, whether it's he see what he did was we, he rebooted the show under him. And so I okay. can't say if it's his device. Cause I tried, Jenny, I did the 17 minute test show and they, st I still couldn't get anywhere. He was thinking it was a limitation of my phone, which it's not, I have 32 gigabyte, you know, Ram and, you know, memory, I mean, and uh, whatever the Ram is two gigs. So anyway, um, but he's going to deal with that and that's his thing, which is great. So yeah, we, I, I concur. I, I, I comment that, that's ex you're absolutely right. We need this open communication. We need to come upon common ground. We need to find out where we disagree. But if we can find and build bridges with all sides, we can build a common ground and then we can get a coalition together. It's like when the unions, right? When the unions started to get movement, it was like, oh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're an independent. No, no, it's about the issues. That's right. right. So, and so, the, 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 the identifying traits are how they divide us and and we need to 
moved from the tribalism. And it's why I said, you know, we're Americans, you know, that's it. We're just Americans and we can, we can work together and throw off these shackles that are binding us. You know, Charlie's listening to the show right now and he's one of the Colin um, employees. And I, I don't oh. know he's, he's listening right now, but he shows up here and there. He's the person to talk to if you're having trouble. You know, that Pangburn hangout, they'll do shows that are six, seven, eight hours and they get published. So there should be yeah. no reason why your show can't be published. No, well, Shaw said he thinks he can get it done. He's going to edit and work on it. He's the guy. I said, let me know, Shaw. As you can tell, I love to talk, but I, I took introduction of Fortran when I was in college. I hate that. To me, it's like, ah, you know, stick my finger in an electrical socket. I'd rather do anything else but that stuff. So I'm like, you do it, bro. So that's his strength. So he's my manager. I joke around and I'm the super heavyweight 400 pound plus. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you noticed, William, but I went and donated 25 bucks to the cause. And Oh, uh, get, thank you. I want to support you and having your own um, platform because I feel like your voice, I mean, as I listen to you talk, I'm like, this dude knows everything, you know? <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of people feel the same way about you. It's like, they want to hear your insights because there's just this depth, but then you've got the breadth of experience and, you know, it's like, you could just fly to the moon with this show. So I want to support you. I'll show up to your show. Anytime I pop in and see you're talking, I will come talk to because I just feel like you've got the stories for the moment. You know, we're in this moment right now and um, okay. we're at this crossroads. Are we going to be a totalitarian system and let them win? Or are we going mm. to fight back and how best yeah. do we fight back? And as I said, during the show just now for the individual, I think the best way to fight back is to become autonomous with your healthcare, and that starts with birth. So that's why I shared my story. I shared a link to my book that I wrote back in, uh, well, I wrote it in 1999, um, A Mother's Journey. It's available on Amazon if anybody wants to hit the link and the call-in page. You can click over there. And, you know, owning your own health is the most empowering thing you can do. And it, it truly does deprive the elites of their main source of income you know, which comes from not just the actual costs tied to using their drugs and surgery, but the after costs of, you know, okay, this thing I just did led to a divorce and a breakup of a family. They now have two households that they can tax, two people working to provide, you know, two how two sets of housing for the kids. And the moms usually break down under that. So they have to go on the welfare benefits. The dads mostly get remarried. You know, but still two households where there should be one. Kids moving back and forth. Lots of mental illness resulting from these breakups. And that's more money for them. And so well, I think the most revolutionary thing you can do is stay married. You know, come hell or high water. Stay married. Love your spouse. And take care of your own kids. I have some things to add to that, but I'm sensitive. Are you on a hard stop today? Or what, can I, I am. Talk? Yeah, I've, I'm already 10 minutes over, but. Why don't you give me a five minute whatever rejoinder and that'll be a great way to end the show. Well, I want to say I've been involved in probate court, you know, and when I was on Facebook, there was this poor girl. She was in the southern state. I forget which one, but I think it was like South Carolina, southern to me because I'm New England. And 
like you, she was anti-vax, you know, and she had, oh gosh, I, I think it was three or four children and her husband was pro-vax. I felt so bad for her. I'm like, be very careful what you're doing in probate. I said, because you may lose custody because obviously they're going to side the, you know, with big pharma, they're not going to side with you. You know what I mean? Oh, and, it's happened um, to so many people. You know what happened? They, the judge, um, she was taken to Facebook. There were other issues she was exposing, um, but she was taken to Facebook and making videos like I was. And uh, especially there were some groups that were active in the judicial reform and probate reform and things of that nature, along with everything. I was involved with like 15 groups. Um, you know, when you're disabled, you got to do something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, that's, so anyway, so... Um, and, uh, the judge slapped her with, uh, uh, like an, um, uh, medical contempt. neglect, no contempt initially to silence her yeah. with threatening. She was going to hit her with a 40 see contempt in civil or probate is not necessarily criminal. It's the judge uses it to get kind of basically extort you to get whatever they want. And so that she, if she broke the silence again and communicated outside the court ex parte communication, you know, outside the court out between her and the judge or attorney, that it would be a $40,000 fine. In other words, she went on Facebook again. I knew that was going to happen. I was like, be so careful. I said, but of course, people at that point, like you and me, are like, hey, I'm going to stand up for my rights. I'm going to say what's true, you know, and I'm not backing down. And I know I'm right. And I agreed with her. But I said, you don't understand what the mechanisms are. Plus, she had a job with B of A. I said, you may lose your job if you keep going public. And it's because it they're all the court of the, the corrupt uh, corporatocracy. I said, you know, uh, please be careful. And I don't know what happened because um, I think she was forced to be silent. So I never heard from her well, again. I'll tell you, when, I'll tell you when, William, it is these types of cases that have happened over the past few decades. Yeah. that laid the foundation for the mass formation psychosis yes. around COVID. Because people oh. know they'll lose custody of their kids, they'll lose their jobs, they'll lose their spouses. Oh. It, it's too much to pay. It's like, go ahead and vaccinate them. I, gotta, I, I don't want to lose everything. And, and you risk, this is what's so deleterious. Let me say, we finally got a win, kind of, in the last couple of days, which I called into Aaron Mate and um, the call-in for him. Katie, useful Katie Helper Show. Katie, you know what? These people, I've talked to them, but they hate it when I start citing, you know, evidence. They get very uncomfortable around certain things. You know, the, 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 the show was on media fails. So what did I cite? The, in the last two days, Vaccine Journal report, which, by the way, is the Brighton Coalition approved by the World Health Organization. Okay. And I posted this link in your show today. Serious adverse events of special interest following mRNA COVID-19 vaccination and randomized adults thumbnail version for men in low-risk cohorts like 30 and under. The vaccine, more adverse events and risk of death than COVID. No kidding. What have we been saying? And what about the mothers in, that were buried in the Pfizer reports? Uh, let's, oh, let me divert. You got to tell me you got to go. Pfizer, Pfizer, the most fined criminal corporation that the, F, uh, the DOJ found, and they find them billions of dollars. Anybody go to jail? 
for their for their um, malpractice in the past about their drugs and misrepresenting them? No. So so they did this. They bear, and all those women, see, boy, all those women in the study. They suddenly eliminated them from the study when they started bleeding heavy, when they had spontaneous abortions. You remember all that, right? All oh, those yeah. documents that come out and. So this is the only thing they cite now on the on the men. It's two years too late. The, you, you and I both know the the natural remedies that we advocate, and by doing that, by trying to save lives, we get kicked off Facebook because of the 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 I don't know what to call it, but the big pharma uh, uh, criminal. Uh, 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 it's it's a mafia. The evidence it's, the evidence is coming out, and if President Trump did nothing else. By setting up Operation Warp Speed, what he did is he accelerated the exposure. And I don't know that he did this, per, you know, on purpose. I, I honestly think he was trying to help. But because mm. they were they were kind of bullied or pressured into getting the vaccine out quick, you know, they didn't do any long-term studies that we know of. And the ones that they did do, you know, they, they buried and wanted to have them stay hidden for 85 years. And now they were, they were forced by the courts to bring them out. And you've got this, these document dumps that everybody who's a journalist, a real journalist, is pouring through and, and pointing yep. to and saying, look, we've got the evidence right here. This is the yep. smoking gun. And then you just have the layers of denial for whoever's mm -hmm. listening or not listening. You know, oh, my kid just killed over dead with myocarditis. It must have been something he ate, you know. Yeah. And it's like the disconnect is there. The truth is there. How do we connect the truth with people's minds? That is the tricky part. And so thank you for chiming in. Thank you for your links. This, again, is the work that I've been engaged in for a long time. And my message, once again, to all families is decouple yourself from these institutions. Own it. If someone like me who was as disabled and sick and drugged and toxic as I was can pull away from these systems and find health and wholeness for myself and my kids, you can do it too. That's my message. So thank you again. Go read my book. I will be back tomorrow at 9.55 with the Jenny Hatch Show. It has been my privilege to spend this hour with you. Here is my, my, uh, oh God, I can't find it. There it is. Yep. My out music. Thank you and have a great day.